Welcome to Our Parents Did What? A tour of the parenting perils of yesteryear. I'm Diane Aragona. And I'm your co-host, Jen Tierney. Join us as we travel back in time to take a look at the sometimes unbelievable history of parenting. Hey, Diane, how you doing? I'm great. I'm actually like much better than I have been recently because last night I decided to go to bed at 9 p.m. And it was like the best decision I've ever made. Yeah. Those nights are magical. Yeah. <laughs> and my daughter slept till six. So I slept from like nine to six. That's amazing. I'm so yeah, proud of you. I feel pretty good. Yeah. Good for you. What about you? I Well, <laughs> I'm assuming you did not sleep. I'm not nearly that rested, but I did get a good night's sleep. The last few nights have been pretty good for us, which is quite nice. But... Yeah, I'm good. I like my work life right now is really crazy, but like every other part of my life is not so bad. So, well, you can't have it all. So. No, you can't have it all. Like something always something has to be crazy, and I mean, as long as it's just one thing, then I'm fine. It's right. Fine. You can handle one thing. Yes. You can handle one one thing. <laughs> Well, do you have a mom moment? So you had this great night's sleep the other night. I did. Which is amazing. I'm going to tell you about a hilarious and similar night I had a few nights ago. So it was Sunday night. I fell asleep. I didn't do a good job this Sunday of planning out my week ahead. I often sit down with my like planner and I figure out, okay, what has to happen at least Monday through Wednesday, just so I have like an idea of what's going on. Because I... I'm the kind of person who overbooks and like just has a million things going on at once. And I just have to do that. And I didn't. And so I went to bed on Sunday night and in the morning I woke up to a very disconcerting sound. It was my alarm, which I have not woken up to in well over a year. Like I set one, (laughs) like I set an alarm because I'm a very cautious person But I never, like, it goes off at at 7.30 when I've been awake for at least an hour. And I go, okay, there you are. Yep, I'm awake. Thank you for ringing at me and reminding me at 7.30. But I woke up (laughs) to the sound of an alarm. And I was terrified because I I was like, is everyone dead? Like, (laughs) Like, Like, no one woke up overnight. Nobody woke me up crying. Nobody had an accident in bed. Nobody needed water. Nobody needed anything. Everyone was still asleep at 7.30. And I was like, something's wrong. What is going on? So I was just like, all right. So I made sure everybody was like alive. And once I was sure that everybody was alive and that I was alive and like everything was okay, I was like, okay, what do I have to do today? And I hadn't planned or anything. So so then suddenly I realized (laughs) that... The reason I was hearing an alarm was not just because my alarm was going off, but also because I had a meeting at 8 o'clock. Oh. And it was now 7.40 and I had a meeting. Luckily, it's a Zoom meeting and I don't have to leave my house. So, like, it it wasn't, like, the end of the world, but it was like, oh, God, I have a meeting. So, Liam is 16 months old and has not yet started talking. He doesn't say words. He just, Mm. like, he's just, he's just hanging out, having a good time. He can communicate really well with, like, he lets us know what he wants and needs. But, like, he doesn't use words yet. So, so we had his very first meeting with a a speech pathologist. (laughs) 
And I'm like trying to get the other two out the house to daycare. And I'm trying to get Liam dressed. I'm trying to clean up the room. And I'm like, oh my God, I got enough sleep. But now I'm like a frazzled crazy man. Right. Was it worth it? It was just so insane. And so we like finally sit down with the speech language pathologist and she's lovely. And we've met her before and she's very nice. And And we sat down with her and Liam, who, as far as I know, you know, can do like some fun stuff for a little baby, but like, you know, is is pretty basic. And she just starts like engaging with him and doing things with him that she would know how to do because she's early intervention. Mm -hmm. And he just like starts using gestures and sign language and making sounds I've never heard him make before. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. What? (laughs) So now he's like, now, whenever we say yay, he claps. When he wants to open Aww. something, he taps it. When he wants to eat something, he puts his hand up to his mouth. When he wants Aww. water, he taps his chin with his finger. Like, he's just, all of a sudden, language is a thing he can do. He just doesn't have, like, the the actual, like, words yet. But, like, now I can really talk to him, and it's really nice. Oh, that's so great. So what started off as a morning of terror then turned into this very lovely, nice morning. And now every Monday I get to spend an hour with this woman and Liam for the next six months. So I have this nice like alone time with Liam to look forward to, which is really cool. That's really nice. I know. So yeah, that's my – I wasn't going to tell the sleeping part, but then your story about getting extra sleep last night reminded me of how that day started. Originally my mom moment was just going to be the speech-language pathology story. <laughs> Well, I liked the twist of the um, the morning wake up. That was cute. Oh, yes, good. I'm glad. So tell me about your mom moment. My mom moment is since we are, I don't know that you would call it quarantine anymore because like things are open again, but we're being really cautious and we don't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a very small pod that we will see. We see my dad. We saw a little bit of, of your family the other week because we knew that people had gotten tested, but we're really, really trying to be careful. And um, I am working and watching my daughter and it's a lot. And so inevitably there's a lot more screen time than maybe I would have, who knows, but I think there's more screen time than there would have been if we weren't home because I used to go a lot of places with her. I would take her shopping and, you know, doing lots of things. And now we don't do anything. We order everything online. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to find programs that are not absolutely grating to me. <laughs> Good luck. Because she's obsessed with Cocoa Melon. Have you heard of Cocoa Melon? <laughs> I've heard of it only because you've mentioned it in our mom group online. I refuse to even search for it for fear that my children will see me searching for it and become obsessed with it. Yes. Good call. So I never searched for it, but we used to let her watch Sesame Street videos on YouTube. And when you play something on YouTube, it just starts like a playlist and it just plays things. And so like after the Sesame Street, it would play these super simple songs, which are very cute. Yes. They're usually nursery rhymes and they're animated and, you know, they're fine. I was okay with those. And then one day Coco Melon came on and Coco Melon is terrifying and loud and very overstimulating for me as a 31 year old so like she loves it though she (laughs) runs over with the remote when she wants to watch it she claps when it comes on but I've been like there's got to be something else that I can put on for her that she will like so our wonderful sister-in-law Stephanie introduced me to the twirly woos oh yes I've also heard of the twirly woos but I have not I have not seen it well 
it started and it was kind of like it's quiet and calm and it's got this real cute like acoustic guitar song that starts it and I was like I don't know if Rainy's gonna be if this is gonna captivate her she sat there staring at it she loved it adorable little like stop motion characters Uh and they make these like really cute little noises and basically they just like go into everyday scenarios and like wreak havoc but each episode you learn something so you learn like spinning or you learn up and down or on and off and so they will like go into a situation where somebody is spinning something or covering something and you learn about it but then they end up like you know making a mess and it's very cute it's very tolerable. So if any other moms are trying to work from home and, you know, watch their children and have meetings and phone calls and lesson planning or what have you, and you need to put something on that you feel okay about, I would recommend the Twirly Woos. All right, listen, I'm going to take us down a real weird road. Are you ready to go on this weird, weird journey with me? You know I love weird, so I'm ready. (laughs) This is a weird one. But I mean, well, so I should rephrase. It's only weird by conjecture. Okay. Most of this story is pretty fine. But there are some things that are kind of unknown about it that just are like just titillating enough that I'm like, this is a good one. This is a good one for our show. Okay. I'm going to tell you all about the father of British midwifery. His name was William Smiley. Smiley? Smiley, and he's a character. Now, let me tell you, until today, I was pronouncing his name wrong. I was pronouncing it Smelly because it is spelled S-M-E-L-L-I-E. So I was like, oh, William Smelly. No, (laughs) he's Scottish. And if you know anything about the Scots, you know that their names sound nothing like how they're spelled. So his name is actually pronounced Smiley. So excuse me if I mispronounce it several times during this episode because I'm reading it and it looks like Smelly. So I'm going to try my best to say Smiley every time, but who knows? I don't know what's funnier. (laughs) Smiley. (laughs) Smiley or Smelly. I know. It's it's apparently a very common last name. Like when you look up like Dr. Smelly or Dr. Smiley, it's like a (laughs) bunch of different doctors alive today come up. So this this man is not alive today. So all right. Let me hit you with all of like the vital facts about Dr. William Smiley. Okay. So he was a Scottish obstetrician. He was born in 1697 and he lived to be 66 years old. Um, so he primarily lived and practiced in London. He was he was born in Scotland. I think he died in Scotland. He spent some years there, but mostly he lived and practiced the majority of his life in London. So he was one of the first and most famous male midwives. There were some male midwives before him, but he's arguably the most famous for many, many reasons, as we'll go into. Do they call you a midwife if you're male? So they called them man midwives, hyphenated, man-midwives. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and today, if you are a man and you practice midwifery, you are called a midwife. Interesting. So it's not a, a, a gendered term, I guess. Cool. Okay, so let me set the scene a little bit in what was going on in this time. I'm going to kind of go out of order with my notes, so you have to bear with me a little bit. But basically... In the 18th century, unless it was an emergency, men were not allowed to participate at all in labor. Sorry, in 
<laughs> Labory. <laughs> they were not allowed to participate in labor, delivery, or lying in. Do you know what lying in is? Because I didn't. No, I have no idea. Okay. So lying in is a one-month period after you deliver where you recuperate in the birthing chamber. Okay. So wherever you gave birth to this baby, which was usually like a room in your house, you just stayed there for a month, right? What? With the baby? I believe so, yes. Unless like the baby couldn't be with you for some reason. But I think yes, with the baby. Lying in ended when you participated in what was called churching. And churching is a blessing from a cleric. A local cleric comes or you go to the church and they bless the woman, which then allows her to return to quote unquote normal life. (laughs) So... It's like a whole routine. And this was like in England. So in England and Scotland. So like I'm sure there were different traditions elsewhere. But like this was was normal there. So all right. So there were a lot of controversies at the time around men being involved in labor in any way. So there was one – there was one specific instance. I forget the man's name. But he secretly – went into a delivery. Um, so I guess he, he you know, dressed up as a woman so that he would be mistaken for a woman. And he went into a delivery room during a delivery. I think he may have been a doctor and he was like trying to observe the delivery and he was executed. So like, <gasps> this was not like, this what? wasn't a joke. There were laws against this. If you were a man, you were not allowed in the birthing chamber. The birthing chamber included like their drawings and like paintings of what it included, but it was basically like, Three women and two stools, no tools, birthing chamber, the end. So there was one woman sitting on a stool who would catch the baby, the woman who was giving birth who was sitting on the other stool across from her, and then a woman behind the woman giving birth who would, like, care for her while she was in labor. Right. And that was it. Although I guess our good friend Pat did it, you know, with even less. <laughs> so Right. She just went and caught the baby herself. No stools, no nothing. <laughs> just... Stand up and catch up, baby. So as man midwives became more common, it was still taboo. So they often hid what they did. They they practiced in secret or you would have to be in very extreme circumstances to invite a man into the birthing room. So like if you were in a situation where it was certain that the baby was going to die and they were just trying to keep the woman alive, then it would no longer be considered a birth and a man could come in. You know, So there were all of these circumstances in which Men could maybe be allowed, but, you know, the, the it had to be under certain conditions. Can I interject here for a second? It, I, it's just like, I'm, as you're saying this, I'm thinking of how, like, it's so funny that this thing that men, like, wanted no part of and it was very taboo, eventually they literally take over. Well, they wanted to be a part of it, I think, and they weren't allowed to be. And then this is the beginning of the takeover. Okay. <laughs> Dr. William Smiley led that cause. <laughs> Whether or not he realized that's what he was doing, you know, like I don't think that was his goal. But um, so let's get back to him. When he was about 23 years old, he got an apprenticeship working in an apothecary shop and he began practicing medicine in the apothecary shop at 23 um, because you didn't need any sort of credentials 
to practice medicine, right? So he just, so he just started doing medicine, you know, and like obviously very simple things. He wasn't doing like operations or anything, but you know, like if somebody needed a tooth extracted or if somebody uh, broke a bone that needed to be set or whatever, that kind of stuff like was probably basic doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So like, like a nurse in school, but like a little bit more than that. So he did that kind of work. And then he, and the, there was a little anecdote here that I thought was really interesting. It was so unlucrative that on the side he sold, he was a cloth merchant as well and sold like fabric Whoa. <laughs> on the side. So like he wasn't rolling in dough from being a doctor. And he, at the same time, he became fascinated with the study of obstetrics, which was very new because up until this point, it was just women helping other women give birth. And there was no, you know, scientific or medical practice around birth outside of like, the baby is is dying and we need to save the mother's life. Right. So he was like really taken by this and decided to start studying it on his own. Like he self-taught obstetrician, which is the most terrifying sentence uh, I think I've yeah. ever said. <laughs> so, so yeah, so he, he was self-taught by 1739. So... 15 years later, he uh-huh. he went for a very brief period to, to formally study midwifery in Paris. And in 1741, he began lecturing and teaching midwives and medical students. So like, he just, he like self-taught for many years. And then he like, went and took a class and then was like, I can do this. I'll just teach everybody how to do this. Um, <laughs> so, and it wasn't until 1745 that he went to the University of Glasgow and actually received an MD. What? Yeah. So, at that point, it's like, why are you even bothering? But okay. But I mean, at this point, he had written several books, like like volumes of books on obstetrics. So he was like, well, I better get a doctorate if I want to be taken serious, <laughs> like really want to be taken seriously. So, so let's talk a little bit about the things that he did that were pretty incredible. Okay. So in the 18th century, there was a family by the last name of Chamberlain, and they were French, I believe. And they were a very famous family of midwives, uh, all male. There were nine of them who practiced within Whoa. this family and they practiced out of their home. So if you wanted to be treated by them, you had to go to their home. And they had this very secretive way of doing everything that they did. Like they didn't tell anybody what their practices were. They didn't write anything down. Like Dr. Smiley like wrote everything down. He wanted to like train people and help them understand how to do this work. But this family like wanted to have a monopoly on how to do labor and delivery as this group of men. And so they had, they had created all of these tools, but wouldn't tell anybody anything about them and were so secretive about them that when they used them on their patients, they would blindfold their patients so they wouldn't know what was being used on them. Well, that just sounds traumatizing. Right? So, but if you were desperate and you needed to get a baby out of you safely or whatever, you know, or you, you were just like, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you need to. And, you know, right. so the doctors would use whatever tools that they had you know, like underneath the curtain with the lady blindfolded to get the baby out. So this is, in fact, who created forceps, the Chamberlain family. Wow. So before the Chamberlains, as far as we know, forceps didn't exist. So rumors abounded. The the word of these these tools got out. And William Smiley somehow, I guess, saw what they looked like or got his hands on a pair or whatever. And he was like, I can make these better. 
And so William Smiley is credited with creating like very safe for the time forceps because the ones that had been used before that were like definitely not safe. <laughs> were they just like kitchen tongs? Like <laughs> Not really, but they were like they weren't shaped in a way that like could right. – Like basically they – forceps were created to extract a baby – as quickly as possible, not taking the baby's health into consideration, just the woman's. Like, it was just about get the baby out to save the woman's life, the end. Because that was all it was about then. Like, before Smiley, nobody was like, can we save them both? It was just, there's a problem, save the woman, the end. Wow, that's a big shift from nowadays, not to get political. But. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so so William Smiley was like, okay, I'm going to create forceps that – can fit properly around the shape of a baby's head so that we can pull the baby out safely and also keep the woman safe. But he also, at the same time, even though he created these forceps and was like an advocate for using them when needed, he was also an advocate for not using them unless they were truly needed. He was like, right. the best birth is a natural birth with no intervention. So he was like, that was his message. He was like, don't intervene unless you absolutely must. Some of the other things that he created and did, he created obstetrical mannequins. Oh. Which were like the first true-to-life mannequin of like a woman's pelvic region that student doctors and student midwives could practice on. And that he and, and they like like he had a little like stuffed fetus that would be in like the uterus, you know, and it Whoa. was and he made these, uh, you know, so I feel like like his background with cloth kind of like <laughs> plays an interesting role throughout his life where he like he's good with fabrics and, and fiber and things like that. And so like the creation of these mannequins is sort of proof of that. Like he was a bit artistic. There's a portrait of him from his early 20s. And it's believed that it's a self-portrait that he did it of himself. And it's, you know, it's a great portrait. That's cool. So, yeah, he seems like he was an artistic guy. He did all uh, – he did a lot of anatomical drawings in his uh, journals and in the publications that he did. So so all of that stuff. And then also he was the first person to document the natural birthing process and devised and publicized a maneuver to deliver breached babies. Before him – there was no known maneuver to safely deliver breached babies. Whoa, really? Like, he just did a lot. Like he was like, I'm gonna I'm on top of this birthing thing. <laughs> That's actually really, really interesting. Right? So he's like a really cool, interesting dude. All right, so <laughs> But I'm sure there's a bad side because they're always Oh, just just wait, it's pretty funny. I mean, there's some stuff that's all of this, remember, is conjecture. So <laughs> Right. I mean, everything I've said so far is true, but the stuff coming up is conjecture. So Oh, the last very, very, very impressive fact about him that I have is that he is the first known person to resuscitate a newborn after lung collapse. Wow. He's just racking up the points, right? Hero. Sounds great. So good. All right. So Dr. Smiley, he wants very badly to teach a, like a whole generation of male of, of man midwives he's like i'm gonna bring all these students in and i'm gonna and he also taught female midwives like they were part of his classes too but like right. he wanted very much for any gendered person to be in the delivery room and so what he did in order to teach people in a more accurate way was he would offer women f his services for free if they would 
allow him to fill a theater, like fill, not a theater, like a show theater, like a like a medical theater, right, with students to observe the birth. So women wanted to go to him, especially if they couldn't afford to, you know, if they had a, if they had a complicated pregnancy and they couldn't afford to go to a doctor, they would be like, oh, I can go to him and people will be there. But like, I'll get these services for free. Yeah. So he had a lot of students who would just pack these rooms full. Like he'd have 70 people in a room with him while he's delivering a baby just to watch his practices and you know what he did because before this there was no way other than his funny mannequin there was no way to observe you know (laughs) babies being born if you were a man and so one of the things that he told his students in order to reduce suspicion and controversy was that they should dress as women in the delivery (laughs) room yeah so like this is like so the (laughs) find a lot of really good like first source like first person sources for this yeah so he always performed deliveries completely draped like there was a big sheet over the woman and him and then like there was a hole for his head (laughs) that's creepy and weird right so like he would be completely draped so his other reason for why he would instruct people to wear big dresses, not like dress like a woman, like they didn't have to like put on wigs and makeup or anything, but like he'd have them wear dresses. And his other reason was because they often had to use tools that were distressing to women who were about to give birth. And if you were wearing this big billowy dress, you could hide all your tools in the pockets inside and then they couldn't see them. Oh my so God. It was like, yeah. It's like hide your tools so you don't scare the ladies. <laughs> Everything about this has like is giving me like major anxiety. (laughs) And it's so far in the past, but it's very funny. Oh my god. Oh my gosh. So yeah, so he apparently, you know, according to whatever sources, would wear like a big basically what a a female midwife would wear for a birth, like a big apron and and a big like frock, you know. (laughs) So so yeah, that's what he did. Um all right, so here comes the controversy. Okay, bring it on. So in 2010, there's a man named Don Shelton who claims to be a historian, but that fact is muddy at best. He read through and studied and did research into that period of time and the medical community and what was going on and and was just trying to find like, I think he was trying to find interesting things. And so he makes, he, he writes this article. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but I'll put it in the show notes. But he writes this article that suggests that Smiley commissioned the murders of pregnant women in order to conduct anatomical studies and experiments. What you know though, that was not an uncommon thing. It was thing. not, Diane. It was very common. Yeah. <laughs> so I would not I would not be surprised. I know, right? So back then, the most famous case of this was a, a man named William Burke. Yes. I know all about this. Yeah, yeah. So so Burking was this thing that people would is basically so this man, William Burke, killed sixteen people and sold them to anatomist Robert Knox, who did anatomy research on their bodies. And so 
So it was common for people to rob graves of newly deceased people or to go into morgues and steal bodies. Like this was not uncommon. And when you're working with a specific, uh, as specific a population as pregnant women, not women who have just given birth or women who have like, you know, fetuses that are, you know, six months old, like we're talking women who are about to, or have just gone into labor. And so during the time that he practiced and the and his partner whose name I'm forgetting right now I think his name was I think his last name was Hudson I forget but the two of them I believe it's like over 1500 bodies that they worked on either did like autopsies on or you know did anatomical dissections or, or whatever you know so it's a lot of like more bodies than you would come across naturally, you know, right <laughs> in your day to day. Like he certainly didn't have that many patients who died on his table. So the question is then where was he getting all these bodies? Where were these bodies sourced from, you know? Right. And most scholars believe, probably correctly, that he just was so famous at the time and he was called so often for really like exceptional cases and, and women who had like extraordinary unique pregnancies or dangerous pregnancies or whatever that like he would probably have been in the know on any pregnancy that was going on where somebody might die. And so he would know about them and then he would, you know, just swoop in there real quick to you know, do whatever. Yeah, sort of, I guess that's you know. possible. But it is sort of like a little tiny bit of an unknown, unknown mystery. Like it could be that this guy who did all this amazing stuff and changed the face of obstetrics forever and has made it what it is today could possibly have been harvesting pregnant women. <laughs> yeah, but isn't that so much of science? Yeah. Like so many unethical, horrible things mm-hmm. were done. Yeah. And it's kind of how we have all this information today. Not, I'm not justifying yeah. it, but I mean, I, w- I would not be surprised. That's yeah. all I'm going to say. So while he was alive, these these rumors existed then and were written about. Um, and that's why this guy in 2010 was like, this could be something. But all the people who wrote about him, you know, having women killed for his research were like direct competitors of his or women who didn't like that he was operating as a midwife. and And so it was a lot of sort of like unreliable sources no real evidence like the tabloid magazines exactly. of the of the 18th century yep yeah and also he has a lot of different anatomical drawings in his various books and people are sort of like well th- these all came from different bodies but there's reason to believe that there were really only like a handful of bodies that he actually used for those drawings, but that he was able to like composite them together because he was a bit of an artist. And so he could, Mm. he could say, okay, well, I'll take, I'll take something from here and something from there and I'll be able to sort of recreate it into, into like a new specimen that I can, you know, them. So yeah, I think at the end of the day, this guy was probably pretty great. Um, However, he also did inadvertently create the hellscape that then became the practices of birth and delivery of like the 1920s (laughs) because men then took over delivery like doctors took it over because as soon as men got in there the doctors were like oh now we can be in the delivery room we got this you can all leave Yes, yeah. so. you guys did this for you know centuries, mm-hmm. but we're gonna we're gonna do it better now. <laughs> we're gonna do it better now. We're gonna take all the medicine and just shove it inside of all the bodies, 
mm-hmm. and rip the babies out. <laughs> we're gonna like, we're gonna knock those those hysterical women out yeah. so they don't know what's happening. Yeah, just rip that baby out. I mean, like he was surrounded by a lot of. People who were, they did not have very many scruples. Like this, this family that created the forceps, the Chamberlain family, like they were blindfolding women to work on them, you know, probably for good reason because they didn't want to like startle them. They didn't want their secrets getting out or whatever, but like not having like clear and honest relationships with their patients. Whereas like Smiley was really like, I believe in trust in women and I want them to be safe and I want their babies to be healthy. And and if I think if he could see where modern obstetrics went as a result of the work that he did, I think he'd probably be horrified. Probably. So yeah, that's Dr. William Smiley. <laughs> I've never even heard of this person. And I also, to be honest, and maybe this is just me, I did not know there were man midwives even today. Oh, really? I did not know that. I did not know. The only reason I knew about that is because... <laughs> I never watched Grey's Anatomy, but I will tell you, I did, for a very brief period of time, watch the spinoff show, Private Practice, um, which featured Audra McDonald, and she was amazing. (laughs) Yes, that's right. There were so many good people in it. And the receptionist in the show was a man named, his character's name was Del, and he was studying midwifery. And that's the only reason why I knew men could be midwives. (laughs) Never even knew that because I didn't watch Private Practice. No, because it was a terrible show. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know. (laughs) So, so yeah, that's what I got. Amazing. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. It's not as controversial as as I was hoping it would be. Like I was hoping there was going to be a lot more there, there, but then it just ended up being like a really fascinating story. Yeah, with a lot of like WTF around it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So yeah, Mm -hmm. and. It's interesting because we all know about like the twilight sleep and, you know, mm-hmm. all the horrible things that, you know, obstetrics became. It's very interesting to see where it may have sort of started unintentionally. I know. And especially that like a, a man kind of started it as a medical field. Like he was just like, we need to get birthing babies into Which, like, science. Which wrong. Like because there are complications that happen mm-hmm. that you need medical attention for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just yeah. like you don't always need medical. <laughs> exactly. And he knew that. But like yes, a, lot, yes, of, a yes. lot of his contemporaries and followers did not. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well. Oh, well. So, yeah, that's that. <laughs> that was fantastic. All right. So before we close up, we've had over a thousand downloads, which is amazing. Yes. Everyone's amazing. Everybody who listens, I love you so much. Diane loves you so much. We just so grateful for you. It's really nice to know that there are people who really enjoy listening and and that's great. I'm shocked. (laughs) Like in a great in a great way. Like it's it's really cool. Yeah, like primarily, first and foremost, this is like a really lovely opportunity for me to talk to you and grow my relationship with you. But like it's nice that other people get to enjoy it. Yes. I agree. (laughs) So yeah. So if you want to get in touch with us, there are so many ways to do that. You can send us an email at opdwpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram at opdwpodcast. We have a page on Facebook Mm -hmm. and we are always looking out for people who use that hashtag mom moment and dad moment. 
Yes. To tell us about all the funny, hilarious things that go on in your mom and dadding lives. We want to know. It's just crazy out there. We know. <laughs> yeah. Please, please. And you can email you can email us. You can direct message us on mm-hmm. Instagram. Like if you have a story, if you have a like a historic photo, if you're going through, you know, your parents' stuff and you find a cool photo, we want it. Oh yes. Send it to us. Send us all your all your wacky stuff. We want yes. it all. Uh, I want to thank Theo Rosenberg for our music. Thanks, Theo. Until next time. A mannequin is not always a suitable replacement for a human body, but sometimes it is.